Welcome to Peak Market Watch, bringing listeners the latest news in the commercial real estate industry. Every other Wednesday, Anton Matley from Peak Financing will interview a variety of investors, brokers, syndicators, vendors, and finance experts who live and breathe commercial real estate. Whether you are a commercial real estate professional or completely new to the industry, Peak Market Watch will give you an inside look into the state of the market from experts who know it best. Let's get into the show. Welcome to today's episode of Peak Market Watch. We speak with market leaders in commercial real estate and related services who have a close pulse on the current market environment. My name is Anton Madley, co-founder and CEO of Peak Financing. I'm honored to welcome Victor Menosh, real estate investor, book, uh, book author, as well as the host of a daily, yes, you heard it right, right a daily uh, podcast. Welcome, Victor. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Uh, Great to be here. Yeah. So you have a very interesting background. Uh, so why don't you share some uh, details with us? Yeah, my pleasure. My path into real estate investing was definitely not the typical career path. I started out uh, trained as an electrical engineer and spent the bulk of my corporate life as a microprocessor designer and then moving up to the ranks of various both public and private companies running engineering organizations. Again, almost always in the realm of microprocessor design or telecom design or something along those lines. And some of the most fun I had in my life, to be quite honest, uh, working with super smart people, uh, working on interesting projects. I've got chips in all kinds of weird and wonderful applications all over the world. If you've ever flown on an Airbus aircraft, the seatback display uh, for a lot of those seatbacks uh, have a chip that I designed that was essentially the microprocessor for that display, LG plasma TVs, Cisco Wi-Fi access points, uh, Hewlett Packard storage networks, Pachinko Apache slot machines in Japan. I mean, the list goes on and on of all these different applications. And around 2008, 2009, we were building a new cellular network in Japan with the number four carrier there and traveling back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks. And it was demanding on me physically, uh, just that, you know, 13 hour flight and 12 hours of time zone, flipping your, your body clock upside down twice a month uh, was just punishing. And it was burning me out physically, emotionally, and decided it was time to do something different. So I resigned my position as vice president of engineering of a company and moved into the world of real estate investing pretty much full time, took a hard left turn in my career and I haven't looked back. So that's how I got into this world. Yeah, uh, very cool story. Uh, uh, kind of very similar to, uh, to mine. Obviously, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on the financing side. Uh, and I grew up in banking, but I was also in that corporate world, lived in Asia for seven years, uh, also in Tokyo for four years and Hong Kong for three years. So uh, uh, I've, uh, I share that, that uh, view of, uh, of that taxing trip back and forth uh, to, to the US and Europe, right? It's when you are younger, it's uh, initially it's a lot of fun, right? Uh, but at some point, it, it gets uh, very taxing on, 
on on your body, on your mind, as well as on your family. Uh, uh, when you, uh, particularly when you have a young family, as it was in in our case, uh, but I certainly. Uh, have have uh, have fond memories of all all the the various uh, uh, places in Asia. Uh, you mentioned that you uh, uh, you did uh, microchips for for some of these slot machines, the check machines in Japan. Obviously, anyone who uh, who visits Japan, they need to go to one of these parlors because there is no other place in the world where you see these these machines, right? It's crazy. I mean, I, I remember uh, I got so good at traveling through Japan. Some of the people at uh, ANA uh, on the Pan Airways, the airline, uh, started to recognize me by name, and I said, "Oh, that's not good." You know, <laughs> when the when the gate agent said, "Ah, oh, Mr. Victor-san, nice to see you again," it was like, "Oh no, that's just not good." <laughs> and so I knew it was time to do something different. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, very good. So you you uh, live in Ottawa in Canada, right? Yes. Uh, and uh, I believe the majority of your investments in real estate once you started out, uh, maybe initially you started out in Canada, but then you quickly shifted uh, to the United States. Uh, as as uh, your main investment market, can you explain a little bit why why you made that decision? Absolutely. Post two thousand eight, uh, really looked at what was happening in the U.S. And while it was a source of tremendous financial pain for millions of people, for someone who was not playing defense but willing to play offense, it was really the opportunity of a lifetime. We were slightly impacted in Canada, you know, where markets went down 50, 60, sometimes 80% in price in some U.S. markets. Canadian markets went down 2%, 3%. It was not the same. We were really spared. In some, in some cases, markets went up in price, again, driven by supply and demand. So we didn't have the massive dislocations that happened in the United States and saw the opportunity to buy properties at well below construction cost. You know, when you can buy, you know, apartment buildings for a third of construction cost, a certain point you say to yourself, I said to myself, I have more upside than downside, uh, which turned out to be true in retrospect. So it was uh, really the opportunity of a lifetime. It was a good time to get into the market. It was a forgiving environment in which to make mistakes. And I made plenty. If I look back on it now, if I was to do it again, I would certainly do it differently. Uh, I ended up wasting a lot of time. I didn't fully capitalize on the opportunity that was present. And it was interesting having come from the corporate world where I had done mergers and acquisitions and had done, uh, you know, run engineering organizations and raised a lot of capital for startups and for you know, taking one company public and all of this sort of thing. And when I got into the world of real estate investing, ended up kind of starting at the bottom, which turned out to be a mistake. It turned out to be a waste of time. Um, so learned a lot. And today I've kind of returned to what I would say are my roots of managing and developing larger projects, just like I did in the tech industry. And uh, today, Fast forward, we're 
doing development projects, new development projects in multiple different cities, both US and Canada. Love what we're doing. We're creating you know, brand new communities. We're building products that the market wants and not wasting any time flipping houses or doing any of that crazy small stuff. Yeah, uh, that's a great story. Now, as you mentioned, right, uh, you took the opportunity, uh, you saw it and you, you jumped into it. You mentioned you made mistakes, right? Uh, yeah. I think back then in 2009, 10, 11, uh, even a little bit later, uh, the prices were that low that uh, it's still allowed for for uh, investors to make mistakes, right? Because the uh, the price point, the basis was was so low that uh, that you still had enough of a cushion. Uh, obviously, today is a very different world. And when we look at some of the properties that you uh, uh, bought back then and where the price points are today, so it's kind of an upside down picture now, right? Back then you, you were able to buy at the fraction of, uh, of a construction cost, replacement cost. Now today in a lot of markets, we have the opposite that is happening where we have uh, buyers going into C-class properties that are uh, priced above the replacement cost, right? So uh, it's it's very interesting to see how how markets shift. Uh, and I think with you now also being active in on the development side, uh, also kind of gives that indication of your worldview that right now it might not be the best idea just to uh, to buy up uh, existing assets at the premium. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you have a 350 or 400 unit complex coming on the market today, guaranteed there's gonna be multiple offers. It's an auction environment. And if you've ever spent any time at an auction, sometimes auction fever takes hold and people end up paying too much. And that's exactly what's happening. I don't want to be the winning bidder with 20 other people at the table. It's almost gonna virtually guarantee that I'm paying too much. So how do you participate in that competitive environment and get out of the auction so that there isn't that fierce competition? Well, if it's a fixed asset and you know the auctioneer is bidding up the price, it's one thing. But if that, that, that happens when you're chasing deals, when you're finding deals that appear in the marketplace, we would rather create deals, manufacture them out of an idea, because there's no competition for an idea that's in your head or in my head. It's, there, it, it's a secret. You know, I don't need a non-disclosure agreement. Just don't disclose it. And now there's no competition. We can create something out of nothing that's going to be much more competitive. And uh, that's the opportunity that, that's afforded to us. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, so you mentioned that you do development both in Canada and, and in the U.S. I believe you have a large development uh, outside of Colorado Springs, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, that one, I don't know, that one's not quite a development yet. That one's still oh, okay. in due diligence. So that's um, in your yeah. head. That's one of these. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. These and opportunities, it may, yeah. It may work, it may not. We don't know yet. We're still in okay. due diligence. And it might be, you know, it's almost 1,800 acres, so it'll be a planned community if it does go forward. Um, and, uh, 
but but we don't know yet. It's too soon to say. Uh, we, we we have other projects that are you know uh, definitely much further along in the pipeline that are um, you know fully committed projects that are going to be gorgeous communities when they're done. Yeah. Yeah. So are you focusing now more on single family developments uh, or, or multifamily? And what is the reason why you would go in one or the other direction? It's really all about supply and demand, um, building the product that the market wants. So in some markets, we are doing single family. We aren't necessarily the builder ourselves. We will take the land through the entitlement process. We'll subdivide it. We'll put in all the horizontal improvements, the servicing, the roads. And we may bring in uh, a national home builder to actually take it forward from there. We have several projects that fit that characteristic. In some cases, if it's um, there's a townhouse component or multifamily component where the density is higher, uh, then we may actually go vertical with the construction ourselves. That, fits our wheelhouse a little bit better. We're, we're, not, we're not a national home builder, but we can definitely build apartments. We can definitely build townhouses where there's a certain degree of repeatability in the process. Yeah. Uh, how would you say that uh, the main differences come in, in developing in Canada compared to the, to the US? There's, there's striking similarities and there's differences as well. I would say that our environment in Canada is far more bureaucratic. It's in the major cities. You get into the satellite communities outside a major city and all of a sudden the process gets much more streamlined, although the similarities in the process. Canada tends to have a lot more by way of development fees uh, to the municipality, what are called impact fees in the US. Uh, and I mean, substantial ones. So the economics are quite a bit different the cost per square foot is higher. It's, it's just different, but the process is remarkably similar. We feel confident we can go into virtually any community and get smart quickly on what are the pressure points in that particular community and almost become as knowledgeable as a local person in a very, very short period of time uh, because we put systems and process in place. Uh, you know, going through zoning is almost the same. Doing a planned use development is almost always the same. All the same considerations come into play. And you might say, well, how can you do that? You haven't lived in, I don't know, Boise, Idaho your entire life. How can you get a leg up on the local on the locals? Well, we do things that the locals won't do. Um, what quite simply, the world has changed. Every single city council publishes their minutes, sometimes the entire recording of their city council meetings and their planning meetings on YouTube. You can watch the entire meeting. Now, nobody wants to sit through 80 hours of city council meetings and the locals don't do that either. But we've developed some process where we actually get a, an entire written transcript of all 80 hours of city council meetings so that we can actually go through that and search it, a full text search of every word that was uttered in the city council meeting over the last two years. Mm-hmm. So if something is of importance, like let's say um, height restriction, you can search for the word height restriction, or you can work, search for the word encroachment or setback or wh- whatever w- keywords would be meaningful. And you zero in on those elements of those 80 hours. And now you know what's happening in those meetings, who's saying what and who's objecting. and 
now you start to get a picture of what those communities are willing to accept and what they're not. And you don't have to be local to do that. It's it's very fascinating time in which to be conducting business in other markets. Uh, so I love the fact that technology makes that possible. Yeah, that's uh, definitely the case, right? Uh, you mentioned uh, impact fees. Uh, I assume that you pick markets where uh, the impact fees and uh, and the overall entitlement process is a little bit more uh, uh, favorable than in some others, right? So you mentioned in Canada, it's very expensive. There are some markets in the US where it's outrageously expensive too, right? So you, you worked in Silicon Valley, so that's... Uh, one of the places, right, whether it's Oakland or San Francisco, we have a developer a client that uh, is building there. The impact fees are just out of this world. <laughs> the entitlement process is is never ending. <laughs> so uh, it's important to pick the right markets, right? And uh... yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the way, I, the way that I look at it, it really comes down to both supply and demand and the ability to pay. So if you think about the cost of new construction, materials cost what they cost anywhere in the country. Doesn't matter whether you're putting them out in the field in the middle of North Dakota or you're putting them on Madison Avenue in Manhattan, a sheet of drywall is 10 bucks pretty much anywhere in the country. But the value attached to that sheet of drywall absolutely is going to vary depending where you put it. So it's a matter of choosing those locations where you've got a, a dislocation, a sustained mismatch between demand and supply, meaning there's more demand than supply. There's upward pressure on rents. And you want to see those market conditions persist for a good long time. And when you have those ingredients and the, the rents are high enough on a per square foot basis, the economics support that new construction. And then you got to focus on, have I got the right team? Because uh, a great deal with the wrong people, they'll, they'll mess it up on you. Uh, that's perhaps one of the most painful lessons that I learned post 2008 as I got some great deals that I tried to execute with the wrong people and then didn't get the result we wanted. Yeah, that's so an excellent point. It's all about point. the people. That's an excellent point. Uh, I personally uh, was involved in a number of projects, large projects, including ground up developments. Uh, the ones that uh, uh, went well, uh, despite all the challenges, and that by the way, was in the mid 2000s, uh, all the way to the 2010 and past that. So doing very challenging times. So the team made all the difference whether these projects ultimately uh, uh, were still a success or were a failure, right? Uh, so that's that's absolutely uh, crucial. Now, when it comes to the financing, obviously in the US there is there is such a massive amount of liquidity and financing programs that are available, particularly on the multifamily side. Uh, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit uh, what what is available for you in in Canada in comparison on the financing side? The programs are remarkably similar. I mean, if you're dealing with your traditional bank, uh, whether it's a local community bank or even a larger national bank, 
you're typically dealing with recourse financing where you're signing personal guarantees. It's exactly the same in Canada. You have, if you've got a, uh, an agency that's providing the loan guarantee, whether it's FHA in the US or a mortgage insurer like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, um, we have the equivalent in Canada. We have CMHC that does a very similar program. So th those things exist. Um, the, you know, there's a bit of bureaucracy. And, and so, you know, the, the, the heavier the guarantee, the heavier the paperwork is kind of the, the rule of thumb here. And the slower the process to get th through the um, to loan approval. But when you do get it approved, whether if it's a, a HUD loan or a CMHC loan, when you do get it approved, it's a, it's a great loan with a long amortization period usually a pretty decent rate that's rate locked for a long time and at the end of the day i don't care what the government says the rate of inflation is i believe we are in a very inflationary environment and the it's a different game you know it, it's a little bit like you know you think you, you've been told you know go to school get a good job save your money all of that usual traditional uh you know, mantra that your parents might have told you. It's a little bit like putting on your padding and your helmet and you go out onto the field and you think you're paying, playing American football. And then these other guys come out and they're also wearing padding and they've got sticks and skates and they're running circles around you because the game is hockey, but you think you're playing football. They're playing a different game and it's a different set of rules, even though there might appear that there's similarities. And the same is happening in the financial world. In the world of inflation, three things happen. People on fixed income, their, their purchasing power gets wiped out. People's savings get wiped out and debt gets wiped out. All three of those happen pretty much together. So if you know that's the game, if you know that your purchasing power is gonna get wiped out, if you know that your savings are gonna get wiped out and you know that debt's gonna get wiped out, how would you structure your business differently? Because there is a winning side of that equation. You just gotta make sure you're on the winning side. I would not bet against inflation. I would end up on the wrong side of history if I was to do that. So if you know inflation's a play, how do you structure? And I think the answer is you want to borrow as much as you can for as long as you can, assuming you have the right to prepay, and use leverage to your advantage. When today, the, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics said that in August, Inflation was running at 5.1%. Well, if you can borrow at 3.1% on a 40-year loan, that's a license to print money. You're shorting the dollar. How do you lose at that game? You can't. That's the key. So structure your affairs to win the inflation game. That's the key because the, the, the price increase, not the value increase, the price increase goes to the equity side of the equation. That's where you get the multiplier. Yep. Uh Excellent points there, right? Uh, uh, I I share your view, right? Uh, obviously, from a government perspective, they need to uh, they had to put the hat on and mention that it's a transitory inflation. Uh, but I think everyone recognizes that that is is unlikely uh, the case. Uh, more recent comments only by by some of the the, the Fed members. Uh, have already shifted a little bit where they acknowledge that it's probably not as transitory as they initially 
indicated, right? But uh, whether it's uh, ultimately at uh, 2% uh, or slightly above as they have targeted uh, or not, the, I, I would say the reality is, is that we, we have a massive amount of liquidity that is in the marketplace. Uh, and that money needs to go somewhere. We obviously we have, and you you are very familiar with that. We have the uh, the, the global supply chain uh, structure that has been uprooted by COVID nineteen, and everyone now goes back from that uh, globalized uh, supply chain and uh, attempts to uh, onshore it again at least to some extent, and that all comes with a cost. Right? So I, I think anyone who has been in, in active uh, globally in, in various economies recognizes that, that all these shifts that are happening are, are have inflationary impact. There is just no other way around it. Well, when the producer price index goes up 22%, and it's part of a food chain that results in manufactured goods and services. How is anyone to believe that inflation is only going to be two percent at the end of that food chain? So it's just not possible. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. And I mean, there's going to be a certain amount of onshoring. I think what's what will happen before that is you know we spent a couple of decades trying to get efficiency built into supply chains so that nobody was held holding on, no one was left holding on to inventory for a minute longer than they had to because that cost money. Now we're seeing uh, inventory being being built in various places in the supply chain to provide security supply because um, security supply is far more important than saving a couple of percentage points uh, on, on interest cost for, for holding that inventory, especially with the cost of money today. So. Security supply is, is everything. If you can't ship the product because you don't have it, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, <laughs> doesn't matter that you saved a couple of points of interest. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think it's important for our listeners also to understand why right, that globalization has been set in motion already 30 years ago. Uh, and it really picked up maybe 20, 25 years ago. I remember when, when I was in Asia, uh, one of our activities was uh, financing all these global supply chains and the, uh, the steps all these major companies like, like IBM, like Nike, in consumer companies like Disney went through was just uh, uh, amazing to see, right? So they produced in China, then they realized, oh, it's too expensive. Let's move to the Philippines. So oh, it's too expensive. Let's move to Vietnam, right? And uh, that all worked out very well as long as the supply chains all, all were moving as anticipated. But as we have seen now, that's... that's uh, uh, it was disrupted very quickly, and now everyone is struggling just to get it back moving. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing it in energy as well. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in Europe right now as we speak, and we see, for example, just the price of natural gas uh, at a seaport in Texas at a little over $5 per million BTU. That same 
million BTU is costing $30 in Spain right now and Italy nice. and France, right? And it doesn't cost you $25 to ship it across the Atlantic. It just doesn't. You're talking $1.50. So the, the, the margins on that sale are massive, uh, but it yeah. speaks to supply and demand and bubbles in the supply chain. And uh, those inefficiencies that have been built into the system are going to take some time to sort out. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you mentioned uh, the importance of the team earlier, right? Uh, you you wrote the book Magnetic Capital. Uh, uh, now, obviously, that is is uh, the focus of that book is uh, to raise uh, money for uh, for your business ventures, whether it's real estate for anything else. Uh, but uh, obviously, what is absolutely crucial is that your investors trust you uh if they don't trust you uh nothing really matters right so can you tell us a little bit some of your key points uh that uh, of of your book i think uh, by the way it's really anyone who hasn't read it it's it's uh, whether you want to raise capital or just be in business, it's really valuable points that you're uh, making in there, but maybe you just can highlight some of the, the key elements when it comes to teams. Yeah, thank you. I, I learned to raise capital in the tech industry. And one of the hardest things to do is to go to somebody uh, who might have some money to invest and say, I have an idea. I have no proven track record. Uh, the market doesn't exist. I have an idea, do you want to invest? That's one of the craziest things to do. And that is the tech industry, it really is. So if you can learn to raise money in that environment, something as simple as real estate where there's demonstrable metrics uh, is easy by comparison. Uh, or even buying an existing business where there's a track record and revenue stream and profits and all the rest is very, very easy by comparison. So the hardest thing to do is say, you know, You know, it's, uh, it's easier to raise 300 million to buy an existing business than to raise 5 million for an idea. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. And I can I tell you from firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. When I moved into the world of real estate investing, I discovered that the same things that made raising money easy in the world of technology also applied here. I had to relearn the process of raising money. And then when I did, I said, oh, this is exactly the same as it was in the tech industry, only easier. And when it's easy, it's because there are five elements that are in place, five principles. And if they're all in place, raising money is remarkably easy. And if any one of those are missing, then it gets very, very hard very quickly. So I'll briefly go through what those are. Number one, you've got to have a relationship with your funding source. People are not going to part with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, the folks that they, that they don't know. It's just not going to happen. So it starts with relationship. Now, I want to, I'm using the word relationship very deliberately because it's not the utilitarian thing of going out there networking and collecting business cards. It's really genuine relationship. And you know, think about developing relationships at a at a core level. You're not there to use people for business. You're there to genuinely develop what might be a friendship, what might be, uh, you know, maybe you help each other with advice, uh, introductions, whatever it might be. And maybe you end up doing business together at some point as well. 
but it starts with relationships. So that's number one. Number two is you mentioned it before, and that's trust. So, but and trust is not just are you dealing with an honest person? That's that's a given. It's well, it's not a given because as we've seen, that not everybody is trustworthy. But the the psychological contract of trust has a lot of layers to it. It's not just are you honest. It's things like. Can I trust you to put together a good plan? Can I trust you to hire the right team? Can I trust you to communicate in an open and transparent way? Can I trust you with small commitments? And on and on and on. There's a whole long list of these things. And, and as if some of these are missing, it starts to chip away at that trust. So you know, trust is not something to be um, managed or manipulated. It's something to be built over time and to be mindful that it's something that can be damaged or destroyed in a very short period of time. Number three, you've got to have a track record. And that's, a, I guess, a little bit related to trust, but it's a very specific piece of it. Show me that you know what you're doing. You know, if you've done, if you're looking for me to invest in this medical office building, show me you've done 10 others and that this one's just like the, the 10 that went before it that you've got a track record, that you know what you're doing. Uh, and if you don't know what you're doing, then bring someone in your team who does so you can borrow legitimately from their track record. I feel perfectly confident in development projects that we're doing, but in some cases, a lender will look at me and say, Victor, you're a rookie by comparison. So I'll bring people into my team that have a tremendous amount of experience. One of my business partners, has built over 10,000 units so far in his career. So when you know when a lender asks for track record, well, I push my partner Bob to the front of the line and we present his track record. Even though I feel perfectly confident and confident in my own ability, they look at that track record. And I can give you lots of examples where we've had, you know, where we've done that. Number four you've got to have a compelling opportunity. And this is where most people start. You know, everyone thinks that, especially in the world of real estate investing, I think it's all about the deal. And it's never about the deal. It, you've got to have that and it's got to make sense, but it's never about the deals. But at the end of the day, you have to have a compelling opportunity. And then finally, you've got to have alignment between the goals for the money and the goals for the project. And if that perfect alignment doesn't exist, don't take the money, it's not going to work. If there's any element of it that's forced, it's not going to work. And the analogy that I would use, it's a little bit like you know, you go to the, the to the shopping mall and you're looking for a pair of shoes, and in the window there's the most beautiful pair of shoes, and it's your lucky day they're on sale. But if they don't fit, you're not a buyer. It doesn't matter how beautiful they are or or or, uh, or how deeply discounted they are. If they don't fit, you're not a buyer. So uh, you know, what does that, what does that fit? It's, well, what's the size of the investment? What is the rate of return? What's the risk? What's the security? What's the tax consequence? What's the control structure? And on and on, there's a whole laundry list of about a dozen factors that you want to consider. And if you have a fit on nine out of 10 or 11 out of 12, it can be seductive because it feels like it almost works. And something that almost works usually doesn't. So you're really looking for that perfect fit. And if there's any part that's forced, don't do it. That's it. Yeah. You do all those things, 
uh, raising money is very, very straightforward. Yeah, uh, absolutely great points. Right? I think of a, a lot of uh, uh, syndicators or uh, people that start out and want to be syndicators, they, they really forget about that alignment element that is so crucial, right? So ultimately, it's not really what you want as a, as a deal sponsor or a developer, when you raise money, you need to think of what what are your what are the needs of your investors, right? And do you align with their with their needs rather than telling them what what you think they should should believe, right? And I think that is what very often gets lost in in the messaging. It's only oh look this great deal, oh look what I have done. Uh, rather than really thinking how all of this really aligns with with the investors' needs, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. And and by the way, once you've raised the money, you know, a lot of people say, "Okay, I got to the finish line." Well, no, you didn't. Now you just got to the start of the project. Now the now the hard work starts. Raising the money is the easy part of these projects. It's about the execution. It's about the, you know, taking it right through the process, whether it's entitlement, construction, construction management, uh, asset management, uh, leasing and sales, all of these steps along the way, you're adding value to the project. And every single one of those is an opportunity for you to mess it up. So you've got to have the right team in place for all of these critical functions. Yeah. Um, so, you, you, so that you have a, a viable business at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, all great points. Uh, Victor, you mentioned it initially, you are uh, uh, the host of a, of a podcast that is uh, not just a, a monthly, bi-weekly, weekly, but a daily podcast. And yeah. you're right now you're in Rome, right? Uh, and uh, you're still recording that daily podcast. Uh, so uh, why don't you tell our listeners what that daily podcast is? So, and hopefully many of them will, will sign up for it. So the show is called the real estate espresso podcast, just like the Italian shot of coffee. And it's literally your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. And the show speaks specifically to not the rookie investor, but the sophisticated investor. We have many listeners that own thousands of units of apartments. We have you know, people that work for the major constructors. The show's doing great. And uh, it's, a, it's a passion project. Uh, now, a little over three years into the show and haven't missed a heartbeat. So love producing that content on a daily basis. The weekday shows are just me, five minutes. So it's literally your morning shot of espresso. And the weekend edition are interviews with notable people from the world of real estate investing. So love yeah. to have you as a listener. And it's the Real Estate Espresso podcast. Yeah, uh, that's uh, absolutely great. So when, when do you usually record the daily ones? Is it first in the day uh, or is it later in the day? What's, what's that? You, you must have some form of a daily process so that you don't miss that beat. Right? If, I'm, if I'm organized, I like to record in the mornings or if I'm yeah. not traveling or something like that. So my usual routine is to record in the mornings Sometimes life gets in the way and occasionally I'll be recording at 1130 at night. I usually prefer not to do that, but I'm committed to the show. And so do what it takes to get, get the show out. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, again, I highly recommend anyone to to listen to it. Right. Uh, one of the the recent ones was uh, about uh, Evergrande in in China. Uh, uh, why they failed. Right. And again, it's 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 not everyone can talk about it, but uh, it's you you add additional element to it because you you worked in in Asia. You have visited these places. You have that additional insight. And I think that's uh, that's always very valuable to to anyone who is listening to podcasts uh, uh, to hear people talk about uh, what what they see and uh, what what their opinion is of what they see based on on the the history they have in in the business world, and that is a perfect example. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many shows out there. There's a lot of people putting out content on a daily basis. And if all I was doing is regurgitating what you could otherwise read in Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal, it wouldn't be adding any value. Uh, We dig a little bit deeper. We look at what's beneath the surface and provide insights often. And I'm amazed by this, quite frankly, that often we report things weeks before you see them in the mainstream news yeah. uh, we and it's happened over and over again that you know we predict what's going to happen with oil prices or what's going to happen uh in terms of the economic numbers even before it's published and i don't know quite how i do that quite frankly and i'm yeah. not saying that to pat myself on the back it's it, just a it's been an observation now from the show after a few years that wow boy the, the news were really slow in reporting that yeah. Uh, so that's been kind of a neat part of the process. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, so Victor, uh, again, uh, our listeners uh, can can listen to your real estate espresso podcast. So please sign up for that. Uh, you have your uh, book uh, that we already mentioned. So please uh, look that up too. Uh, what other ways can can our listeners uh, uh, reach out to you? Uh, my website is uh, very simple. It's victorjm.com. My last name is a little bit difficult to spell, so victorjm.com. And uh, you can get in touch with me directly to the website, uh, listen to the podcast. Um, uh, happy to connect with uh, your listeners. All right. Very good. Uh, thanks again, Victor, for, for coming on uh, all the way from across the uh, the Atlantic was really a pleasure to have you on and uh, uh, wish you a lot of success uh, going forward with all your projects. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Peak Market Watch. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you're interested in receiving a free commercial real estate loan quote for your property, click the link in the description. We look forward to connecting with you on our next episode of Peak Market Watch.